You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Last week I began by saying that we have a tendency in our hearts to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think and to underestimate our weaknesses and our wickedness and to overestimate our strengths and our abilities and our own sense of righteousness. And I think that the same can be said of our heroes of the faith. We tend to overestimate our heroes and we forget that they have weaknesses and that they are still sinners and we tend to just focus on their strengths and their abilities and their giftedness and forget that they also have weaknesses and they also have a flesh and that they also are still just redeemed sinners. I finished this last year a book, and I finished it in February by John Piper. It was one of his series of books in what he calls the Swans Are Not Silent series. And this book was called The Legacy of Sovereign Joy. And it was a, a mini-biography of the lives of Augustine, Luther, and Calvin. And in the book, Piper does a great job of talking about the strengths and the abilities and the accomplishments of these three great saints. But he also does not cover up the weaknesses that each man had and the mistakes that each man made. In fact, the book is as much about the mistakes and of these men in their ministries as it is about their accomplishments. And the book is about teaching us as much from the, giving us as much instruction from their mistakes and their errors as we can gain instruction from their accomplishments and their strengths. In fact, in the introduction to the book, Piper writes this, and I think this is profound, listen. He says, God ordains that we gaze upon His glory dimly mirrored in the ministry of His flawed servants. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of their God. That's profound. God ordains that we would glimpse His glory through the imperfections of the faith of His flawed servants. In other words, we look at men and women of God who have lived in times past and we see the imperfections of their faith, the imperfections of their lives, and there are certain things that we learn from those and we get to behold the beauty of their God through the imperfections of their faith. It is because God is glorified in our strengths and in our weaknesses, and also He is glorified through our weaknesses, and He is glorified through our errors and our mistakes, just like He was in the lives of Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon and Augustine, and just like He is through you and I today. We tend to overestimate our heroes, but God intends that we look honestly at their mistakes and their failings and learn something through them, and Paul is no exception. Paul was a man who, as we have seen, is worthy of our admiration, not our adoration, but our admiration. He is worthy of it because if there has ever in the history of the world been a more godly man, I don't know of one, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, but as far as it fleshing out the faith goes and living their faith and being godly in the midst of almost every circumstance that life can throw at you. I don't know of anybody who parallels the Apostle Paul. And as Luke writes in the book of Acts, this 
sort of mini-biography of Paul's life and his ministry, we see his strengths and his accomplishments, the miles that he traveled, the churches that he planted, the people he discipled, the books that he wrote. But Luke does not hold back from sharing with us also some of Paul's failings, as it were, some of his mistakes, some things that are that are less than in keeping with a hero of the faith, like his episode with Barnabas. That's one example. Like the time in Corinth when Paul had to be encouraged by the Lord, Paul, stay in this city. I have many people in this city. When Paul wanted to leave. And like in the text that is before us this morning, where the Apostle Paul says something in anger and immediately has to apologize for it. That is at the beginning of Acts chapter 23, verses 1 through 5. And you'll need to have your Bibles open to that text this morning as we look at how the Apostle Paul says something in anger And then he immediately has to apologize for it. And through his mistake, through his violation of the law, through his error, his failing, we learn, number one, how God wants us to respond to authority, even when that authority is in the wrong. And second, we learn Paul's respect for the Word and how he viewed the Word of God and how he kept a clear conscience. Acts 23, let's just follow along with me as we read verses 1 through 5. Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived with a clear, lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law and in violation of the law order me to be struck? But the bystanders said, Do you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Verse 1 of chapter 23 says that Paul was looking intently at the council. Now, you have to understand who the council was and what this council was. And in order to understand who Paul is standing before, we have to go back to chapter 22, verse 30, where Luke says that on the next day, wishing to know for certain why he had been accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the council to assemble and he brought Paul down and set them before him. Paul is in the custody of Claudius Lysias, the commander of the Roman cohort. Paul had been seized in the temple. He had been falsely accused by the Jews of preaching to all men everywhere against the law, against the people, against the temple, and of defiling the temple by bringing a Greek, a Gentile, into the temple. Then he was mercilessly beaten until he was rescued by Lysias. Lysias got him to the steps of the barracks on his way to take Paul into safety and to try and talk to Paul about what the whole cause of this riot was, Paul asked to address the people. So Lysias let him address the people. Then the riot started up again when Paul mentioned the Gentiles and being sent to Gentiles. And then Lysias rescued him again from that and took him inside and intended to interrogate him by scourging him. And Paul narrowly missed death, saved by one thing in particular, and that was that he was a Roman citizen and Lysias couldn't scourge him. So Lysias released him from his chains, kept him in the barracks overnight, and now Lysias understands that the Jews' accusation against Paul is not criminal, it's not political, it's theological. And the way to get to the bottom of the accusation, still wanting to know why it is that the Jews hated him so much, and what had caused this riot, Lysias came up with a perfectly good idea. I will bring the apostle into the Sanhedrin, the council of the elders, the high priests, and the scribes, 
and I will allow Him to talk to them and them to talk to Him, and I will sit back and I will watch this unfold, and that will help me get at what the bottom, at the bottom of what has caused all of this. If it's a theological issue, then put Him before the nation's theologians and let them hammer it out and let me see. So Lysias is going to step back and he's going to listen. And he's going to be asking himself, do they have valid accusations against this man? Or are they fluff? Do I have to act on on something and punish him or execute him or try him in a Roman court or will I be able to let him go? And if the council is able to bring valid accusations against Paul, and if they are able to muster witnesses to bring those accusations against Paul, then one of two things is is going to happen. Either Lysias is going to try Paul in a Roman court if the crimes fall under Roman jurisdiction and then he will punish Paul or he will turn Paul over to the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin will try Paul in their own court and punish him. Now which one of those punishments do you think is going to be worse? Where do you think the Apostle Paul would rather be? In the hands of Lysias or in the hands of those Jews? He'd rather be in the hands of Lysias. See friends, Paul is on trial for his life. And what Lysias wants to find out is Do I set him free? Do I turn him over to the Sanhedrin? Or do we keep him in the Roman judicial system and and punish him ourselves? So he brings them before the Jews and he wants all of this to hash out so he can get it at the bottom of this whole riot and everything that's happened in the last 24 hours. And it is standing in the presence of that council, which is also known as the Sanhedrin, that Paul gives this defense and this... um, starts to give a defense that's contained in verses 1 through 11. Now, it's been a long time since we talked about the Sanhedrin and we looked at the Sanhedrin. Do you realize the last time we talked about the Sanhedrin was back in Acts chapter 6 when Stephen was standing before the Sanhedrin? That was almost two years ago. So let me refresh your mind as to what the Sanhedrin is and what their function was and who composed the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is a word... The name for the council, the Sanhedrin, came from a Greek word that meant a council. That's profound, isn't it? They they claimed that they originated under Moses and that Moses instituted it, but that's really fanciful. In reality, the Sanhedrin sort of formed after the Babylonian captivity, after their exile, when they came back into the land, after Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah's time is when the Sanhedrin formed. They were made up of three groups of people. There were the high priests... Now, the high priest uh, consisted of the high priest, who himself functioned as the president or the presiding officer of the Sanhedrin. And anybody who was of high priestly descent belonged to that group and was a member of the Sanhedrin. And any previous high priest who had served and then had been deposed or replaced and had gone into retirement, they also sat on the Sanhedrin. And then they consisted of what was called the elders. The elders were sort of the ruling aristocracy of the nation of Israel. They were the financial, the wealthy, the powerful elite, men like Joseph of Arimathea. They also consisted of of religious and priestly type aristocracy like Nicodemus, who was a member of the Sanhedrin. And then the Sanhedrin consists not only of high priests and elders, but then of scribes. And these were the experts in the law. These were the copiers of the law, the teachers of the law, the students of the law. These guys were into the minutia of all of the law and the commentaries. And, and all of the stuff that went with that. Those were the three groups of people who made up the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had the power and authority to rule as the religious body of the nation of Israel. So they would convene courts, and if somebody had broken a Jewish law, they would bring them in and they would punish them, like they did with all of the apostles in Acts chapter 5, when 
when they beat all of the apostles, flogged them and let them go with orders never to preach again in the name of Jesus. They considered the apostles as having been guilty of blaspheme. And so they brought them in. They tried them. The apostles gave their defense and they punished them and they let them go. The Sanhedrin had that capability. They had that power, that authority. They also had their own police force, the temple police. And the head of the temple police was part of the high priestly class. And he took orders from the high priest and the high priest used him to carry out his bidding. So they had jurisdiction over things pertaining to Jewish law. But they did not have the jurisdiction over things pertaining to Roman law and they could not execute anybody. And in order to accomplish an execution, they turned them over to the Romans like they did with Jesus. But they didn't do that with Stephen. They just murdered Stephen. They didn't bother going through the Roman system. They just drug him outside and they murdered him. They didn't have the authority to do that, but they did it anyway. Now, of those three groups, the high priests, the elders, and the scribes, there were two theological parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've heard of those two, haven't you? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, those two had, and we're going to look more at the distinctions between those two parties next week, but for right now, just remember this. They had deep, irreconcilable theological disagreements. They could not get on the same page, on the same table, on nearly any subject under the sun. Except one, they wanted Paul dead. They could all agree about that. But when it came to anything theological, the Sadducees were liberals, the Pharisees were conservatives, and they didn't agree on anything. So those are the two ruling theological parties within the Sanhedrin itself. Now, on five different occasions, let me just refresh your memory about something. On five different occasions, the Sanhedrin has been privy to hearing the claims of Christ and then rejecting them. Five different times. Once in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus was tried by the Sanhedrin, he gave his defense, his statements. They heard his claims. They heard the testimony against him, and they rejected him. Then in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin, they gave their defense. They heard the claims of Christ, of Christianity, and they rejected it. In Acts chapter 5, they brought all 12 apostles before the Sanhedrin. They heard their defense. They heard their claims, the claims of Christ, and they rejected it. In Acts chapter 6, they brought Stephen before the Sanhedrin, and they heard his masterful defense from the Old Testament of all that the fathers expected and how it was summed up in Christ. And then when Stephen indicted them, they rejected it. And now the fifth time is here in Acts chapter 23 with the Apostle Paul. On five different occasions, they have had master communicators in their presence, presenting the claims of Christ, and they have rejected them. These are the master builders. Christ is the stone that they rejected who has now become the chief cornerstone. That's what the prophecy speaks of. Five different times they have rejected it. That's the Sanhedrin. That's the council that Paul is standing in front of. And look at verse 1. It says he was looking intently at the council. Now, Some people have read those words and they come up with all sorts of fanciful ideas. For instance, they say Paul was looking intently at the council because he had bad eyesight. So he was squinting, looking intently at the council, unable to really see what was going on in the council. I don't think that's right. I don't think Paul had bad eyesight. 
Some say he was looking intently at the council because amongst all of these 70 plus men who were who he was standing before ready to give an account to them, he was looking for somebody that he was familiar with, somebody who maybe he had gone to school with or somebody who maybe he had trained with, somebody he had worked with 25 years earlier when he was involved with that whole class of people. He was looking intently for somebody that he knew, a familiar face in the crowd. I don't think that's it at all either. It says that he was looking intently. He was fixing his eyes on the council. And you know what Luke is intending to communicate in those words? Luke is intending to communicate that the Apostle Paul was boldly standing before the council. He had confidence. He was innocent, and he knew he was innocent. He had integrity, and he had maintained his integrity. He had a clear conscience before God, which is why the very first words out of his mouth are bold words. I have lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up until this day. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flees when no one is coming, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. That's the Apostle Paul. He doesn't stand there looking at the ground or kind of not looking them in the eye and, and panicking and whether or not he's going to be set free, whether or not they're going to let him go, are they going to punish him? He's not guilty and so he doesn't act guilty. And he stands in the presence of the council and as they bring him before, as Lysias brings him before the council and sets him there, the Apostle Paul stands there staring down his accusers. He has nothing to fear. God is on his side. God has delivered him once. He'll deliver him again. He has nothing to fear in the presence of these men. His conscience is clean. He has maintained his integrity. He is righteous before God. And he stands there before these men unashamed of anything. He's not guilty and he won't act guilty. And so he is looking intently at the council. And look at how he addresses these men. Now, in the Sanhedrin, if you stood before the Sanhedrin, there was a customary, typical way that you would address the Sanhedrin. You would say, rulers and elders of the people. Those would be the first words out of your mouth. Or you might say, brethren and fathers. Those were terms of respect. Like in a court today, when you stand before the judge, you don't say, hey, bro, how's it going? You don't say, hey, man, I'm glad to see you again. Or, hey, John, even if you know them. In a court of law, you address him in his position of authority and say, your honor. And if you don't address him as your honor, like he deserves to be addressed and should be addressed, then they would take that as a sign that you hold the court in contempt, that you actually look down upon them. There was a customary way of addressing the Sanhedrin. Rulers and elders of the people. That would be like saying your honor. Look what Paul says. Brethren. Now in Paul's instance, that doesn't indicate contempt. It doesn't indicate disrespect. Paul is addressing them, listen, as peers. He is on their level. Paul had served with these men. He had served on this council. He had walked with these men. Some of the people on that council had been schoolmates with him. Many of them probably trained by Gamaliel just like he was. They were his age. They were of his background. They knew the law the same way that he did. He is addressing them as peers, as equals. And he is saying, brethren, it is a respectful term, but he is not talking up to them, he is talking across to them. He once was where they are, he once stood where they stand, he was once on the prosecution, and his, his reference to them as brethren would remind them, he once sat where we sit, and did the same thing that we're doing to him. He addresses them as equals. It is a respectful address, but friends, it shows his familiarity with the people who are on that council. Paul is among his peers. 
He is among his intellectual peers. He is among his religious peers in the sense that they share the same background that he did. He'll say later, I'm a Pharisee and the son of Pharisees. When I sat on the council, he says, I was a Pharisee. And I had your same theological perspective. So he addresses them as brethren. And he says, brethren, I have lived with a clear conscience, perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Now ask yourself this question. How can a man who once persecuted the church of God say that he has lived his life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day? How can he say that? Did he not feel guilt over his former sin? I don't think he felt guilt for it. He was forgiven for it. And I don't think the Apostle Paul walked around beating himself over the head for his past life. He knew that that was on Christ. It was taken away. He was forgiven. He was justified. It was dealt with. It was confessed. But Paul is able to say, I have lived before God with a perfectly good conscience up until this day. Now, it might help if you understand a little bit about what a conscience is. Let me describe to you what a conscience is and how it functions. A conscience is a is the moral faculty, the moral and spiritual faculty that each individual person has that passes judgment upon their actions and their deeds. Let me repeat that. It is the moral and spiritual faculty that each individual has that passes moral judgments upon the, an individual's deed. My conscience judges my behavior. And my conscience does this according to the highest, listen, the highest standard of morality that I understand, that I am aware of. And so Scripture speaks of a bad conscience and Scripture speaks of a good conscience. My conscience will do one of two things. It will either accuse me or it will excuse me. In fact, that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 when he says they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing them witness, either accusing them or excusing them. My conscience either condemns me, it accuses me, or my conscience excuses me. My conscience says you haven't done anything wrong. One of those two things. My conscience functions based upon the parameters that I have put in place the moral education and training that I have received, and the information that I have in my mind of the highest moral standard to which I must attain. So there are good there are good consciences and there are bad consciences. Scripture speaks of false teachers who have defiled their conscience. Because you see, your conscience can be defiled, it can be dis- dysfunctional, or it can even be destroyed. You can defile your conscience by polluting it so that it doesn't function quite right. You can make it absolutely dysfunctional so it's not functioning at all, or you could destroy your conscience through what you do to it. Scripture speaks of a time when you and I had evil consciences, but since then we have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, and we've received a good conscience or a pure conscience. The worst thing in the world is to have a seared conscience. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 speaks of men who are seared in their conscience. And you know how somebody gets seared in their conscience? Somebody gets seared in their conscience when through their unbelief, their lack of faith, or their sin, they have ignored the warning signs that God put in place inside. And every time conscience speaks with those lips, we sear it with our sin. So we silence it. So friends, every time you sin and don't deal with your sin rightly before God, what you do is you sear your conscience. And you do that enough and pretty soon your conscience won't speak to you anymore. And we have words to describe men and women whose consciences don't speak to them anymore. The word is sociopath. They can lie without guilt. They can kill without guilt. They can steal without guilt. They can commit almost any moral crime without guilt because through their sin, their unbelief, their wicked thinking, and their learning, they have so polluted, so defiled, that they have destroyed their conscience and their conscience doesn't speak anymore. They sear their conscience. You can have a weak conscience. 
You can have a wounded conscience. 1 Corinthians 8 speaks of that. But listen, let me tell you what, what conscience is not. Conscience is not two things. Number one, it's not the voice of God. So you do something bad, you think something bad, you do something bad, or you say something bad, and you feel that tinge of guilt, right? Your heart gets crushed. You, you, you feel that guilt that comes as a result of your sin. And when you and I talk about that, we are tempted to use these words, the Lord told me that that was wrong. No, your conscience, your conscience was active. Your conscience convicted you. It may be that the Spirit of God used your conscience to bring about a repentance, but it is not the voice of God. Second, it is not infallible. My conscience can actually make me feel guilty for things that are not sin. You understand that? My conscience can make me feel guilty for things that are not sin because my conscience functions upon whatever information I feed into it. I had a great-grandmother who was a Seventh-day Adventist. She would not eat pork if it were the last animal on earth and the earth was scorched and there was nothing to eat but a pig, she would, she would die of starvation. No way she would ever eat pork. She had nine children and she raised all nine of them to never touch pork, never have anything to do with pork, never eat pork because it is an abomination before God. Now, they will raise pork on the farm and they will sell pork, but they won't eat pork. Now, I don't understand that. That's like saying, I just grow the marijuana, I don't smoke it. But they will not eat pork. They will not touch pork. It's unclean. Won't eat it. Won't have anything to do with it. Now, you and I know, friends, that nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving and that nobody should act as your judge in regard to food and that you can eat pork even if it's offered to idols. If you have a healthy, a healthy, well-informed conscience, those things won't bother you. But listen, their conscience has been trained to the point where if they ate pork, they would feel guilty about it. It's not sin to eat pork. But their conscience tells them that because it has been informed that way. Do you think Hitler had a guilty conscience for what he did to six million Jews and more? Didn't have a guilty conscience. Why? Because his conscience was operating out of a wicked mindset, a wicked worldview, and out of his sin. And through his unbelief and his sin and his perpetual ignoring of his conscience, he had so trained his conscience not to bother him, and he could execute six million people and think he was doing a good thing. You think the terrorists who flew airliners into our into our buildings on September 11, 2001, do you think they had a guilty conscience? They thought they were doing well, didn't they? Paul, before he came to Christ, did he have a guilty conscience for, for killing Christians? He thought he was doing God's service. He thought he was doing what God wanted him to do. And he was zealously serving God because he loved God and his desire was to please God. And he thought he was doing the right thing. But on the Damascus Road, he got a rightly informed conscience. And he changed his behavior. And from that moment forward, he lived with a clear conscience before God. Scripture speaks of an evil conscience. also speaks of a good conscience, a clear conscience, and a blameless conscience. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience, just as my forefathers did. In his address before Felix in Acts chapter 26, verse 13, verse 16, Paul says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before man. You can have a clear conscience, a clean conscience, and a blameless conscience. How do you have that? For us as believers, as Christians, it is the role and activity of the Holy Spirit which quickens our conscience and uses our conscience. But friends, it also comes about when you and I purge ourselves of sin and we rightly inform our conscience with the Word of God. So we keep it healthy and we keep it acting within the right parameters. 
so that we don't feel guilty about things that are not sin, and we don't sin without feeling guilty. We allow our conscience to speak to us. So when the Apostle Paul says, I have lived with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day, what he is referring to is his ability to stand in their presence with all boldness and stare them down and say, what I am being accused of, that I have preached against the people, against the law, against the temple, and I have defiled the temple, those things are wrong. I stand before you with a clean conscience before God. I am innocent. I have not done what I have been accused of doing. And I stand before you today and before God, and I, my conscience bears me witness that I have not done anything wrong. I have a clear, blameless, clean conscience. I am innocent. And the Apostle Paul could not have stated his innocence any more, any more strongly than he did or any more passionately than he did In fact, he stated his innocence in such strong terms by saying that, that it infuriated the high priest. And look at verse 3. Verse 3 says that, sorry, verse 2, the high priest Ananias commanded those standing beside him to strike him on the mouth. Why did Ananias do that? Because the apostle Paul is saying, I could stand before God and say, I've served him, I'm innocent before him, I'm righteous before him, I'm obedient to him, and I'm doing his will. That turns the tables on them because if they're opposing him and beating him and trying him, that means they are opposing and beating and trying the purposes of God and they are therefore disobedient. And Ananias couldn't tolerate this and he gave the order and somebody struck the Apostle Paul. Now Ananias is the high priest. He's the ruling and presiding member of the Sanhedrin. We know a little bit from Josephus and the history that Josephus writes about who Ananias was. Let me tell you about this guy. Ananias, it was said, even after Ananias' death, that he was the most wicked man to ever be high priest in the nation of Israel. The most wicked man. He served as high priest from 47 A.D. to 59 A.D., about 12 years. To put that into perspective with Paul, he started as high priest just before Paul left Antioch on his first missionary journey, and he served as high priest through until just after the events in Acts chapter 23 when he was deposed by King Agrippa and replaced as high priest. Ananias used to rob the temple in the sense that he would go in and all of the offerings that the priest would collect for the ministry of the temple and for their own support so that they could function in the capacity of priest within the temple, Ananias would steal that from them and he would use the temple police to beat any priest that resisted turning over all of his money. So he plundered the priesthood. He was a violent man. He was an aggressive man. He was a man literally without a conscience. And Paul knew that. And probably everybody standing in the Sanhedrin knew that. That he was a man literally without a conscience. Rome suspected Ananias of being guilty of committing some atrocities against the Samaritans. Just a couple years before these events in Acts 23, the Emperor Claudius brought uh, Ananias up to Rome to try him for these atrocities that were committed on the Samaritans, and he was acquitted. They didn't have proof. Listen, nobody doubted he did it. They just couldn't prove it that he did it. And so he was sent back to Jerusalem to serve as high priest, the most wicked, immoral, conscienceless, violent, abusive person to ever hold the position, and he is high priest. And so what we read in Acts 23 is perfectly in keeping with what we know from history about him. The minute the Apostle Paul talked about his own clear conscience before God, the fact that he was being obedient and he was living righteously before God, Ananias gave the order to strike Paul on the mouth. Now the word strike is not what you would envision with a gentlemanly English slap where they pull the leather gloves out of the pocket and fold them up nicely and go quack, quack across somebody's face. That's not what he means by strike. Tupto is the word that Luke uses to describe the Jews beating Paul outside the temple when they wanted to kill him just the previous day. 
It's also used of the Romans beating the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 27. Ananias gave the order and they literally beat the Apostle Paul on the mouth. That's what's being envisioned. And as soon as Paul could form words with his mouth, he said, you whitewashed wall. God is going to strike you. You sit here in this court of law and you judge me according to the law and you yourself are a violator of the law. Now what Paul said is absolutely true. Ananias was sitting in the court of Israel and he was trying a man and the law said that he deserved a fair trial and should get a fair trial and that he should be treated fairly. He had not been charged. He had not been condemned. He had not been accused. None of those things were true. And not even one sentence comes out of his mouth and Ananias gives the order to strike him. And they beat Paul across the mouth. And Ananias has violated the law. And yet he stands there as judge before these people, judging Paul according to the law that he has violated. And so Paul issues a curse upon him. You whitewashed wall. God is going to strike you. You who sit and judge me according to the law while you yourself violate the law. And you think Ananias wanted to get into a discussion about the law with this well-trained student of Gamaliel? <laughs> you, don't, you don't want to avoid all of the discussions about the law and the, and the minutia of it because the Apostle Paul would clean your clock in a discussion about the law. Ananias doesn't want to get into any of that. But he's violated the law. Now what Paul says to him alludes back to what we read in the scripture reading in Ezekiel chapter 13, where Paul, where God condemns the false prophets of the nation of Israel for proclaiming peace, peace. And then Ezekiel, or the Lord says through Ezekiel, you false prophets, you nation, you are a whitewashed wall. You are a wall that is tottering there. It is weak. It has no, no mortar in the stones to hold the wall together. It is tottering. It is weak. It has blemishes. It's of no use whatsoever. And so what is the answer? Tear it down? No, you put a coat of whitewash on it. So you whitewash it over and you give it a good paint job and you say, well, that looks a lot better. And a whitewashed wall was one that had no internal in integrity, one that had no mortar between the stones to hold it together. It was weak and full of blemishes in every way, but you would cover all of that over by giving it a coat of whitewash. And the Lord said in Ezekiel chapter 13, I will tear down the wall which you plastered over with whitewash, and I will bring it down to the ground so that its foundation is laid bare, and when it falls you will be consumed in its midst, and you will know that I am the Lord, and thus I will spend my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it over with whitewash, and I will say to you, the wall is gone and its plasters are gone, along with the prophets of Israel who prophesy to Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, declares the Lord. So Paul alludes back to Ezekiel 13. You are the whitewashed wall. Now listen, Ananias, the priest, the scribes, the elders, everybody present knew exactly what the Apostle Paul was saying. And here's what he's saying. You are a weak, tottering wall without any internal integrity whatsoever. You are full of blemishes. You look good on the outside. You are a false prophet. You are a false teacher. You deceive people because inwardly you are wicked and worth absolutely nothing, but you plaster it over on the outside by putting a coat of whitewash on it. But here is what I'm here to tell you, Ananias. God is going to strike you. He's going to lay you bare. He is going to destroy you. He's going to wipe clean because of your hypocrisy. And you who have no conscience sit here judging me who have a conscience. You who have violated the law sit here judging me according to the law. Now that's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's a curse. Now just as an aside, what Paul actually said came to pass. Because only six years after this, 
In fact, less than a year after this, Ananias was removed from the high priest's office by Agrippa. And six years after this, in A.D. 66, just prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, in A.D. 66, there was a Jewish revolt against Rome, and the Jewish revolutionaries sought out to kill any Roman or anybody who was friendly to Rome. And Ananias was friendly to Rome. And according to tradition and history, they found him hiding in an aqueduct, and the revolutionaries brought him out, and they killed him, and they slaughtered him. What Paul said was going to come to pass actually came to pass. God did strike him down. God did lay him bare. But it's a curse. And those standing by, the Apostle Paul, hearing what he said, understood immediately what Paul was saying, and they called Paul on the carpet. You revile God's high priest? Revile means to insult, to abuse, to speak poorly of something. You revile God's high priest? How dare you do that? And what have they done? They've caught Paul on a technicality, right? Because Paul's just violated the law. He's reviled the high priest. He's spoken evil, abusively, of the high priest. They're trying to try him on the basis of the law, and he's just given them a little bit of fodder. I hear he's reviled the high priest in the presence of the Sanhedrin. He's violated the law, which they're judging him on. Now, do you notice that they didn't call Ananias on his violation of the law? Did you notice that? Everybody's silent. The council's silent. Why didn't somebody stand up and say, Ananias, you've just violated the law by striking the Apostle Paul. Nobody's going to do that because everybody in the council wants Paul dead. And you're not going to question a tyrant like Ananias. He'd have the temple police knocking on your door that night. He'd take you out and you would wake up with a pair of leather boots on your feet in the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. That's how Ananias dealt with those things. Nobody questioned, called Ananias on his conduct, but they cornered the Apostle Paul and said, you speak evil of God's high priest. And the Apostle Paul immediately, watch what he does, he immediately says in verse 5, I was not aware, brethren, that he was high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of a people. The Apostle Paul immediately apologizes, recognizes that what he did was wrong, understands the scriptural reference that makes what he did wrong, and he immediately confesses that, acknowledges it, and sets out to make it right. I didn't understand that he was high priest. Because the scripture says that you shall not speak evil of the ruler of the people. So Paul says, you're right, what I did was wrong, it was a violation of the law, I'm sorry, and he apologizes. Now, Paul's statement there has raised a question that has become the source of all kinds of speculation, and this is kind of interesting. Here's the question. How could the Apostle Paul not know that Ananias was high priest? How could he not know that? Didn't you ask yourself that? What's Paul doing here? How did he not know who the high priest was? Now, some people have tried to answer this question by suggesting some things that I think are rather fanciful, but a couple things that I think make a lot of sense. First of all, some have suggested that the Apostle Paul's uh, statement here is just sort of a lame excuse for what he did. Oh, sorry, I didn't know. Didn't know he was high priest. Please forgive me, sorry. When he actually did know that he was high priest. Now listen, that turns his apology on its head and kind of makes Paul out to be a liar, which is another violation of law. I don't think that that's what he's doing. Some have suggested that it's sort of a sarcastic statement of irony, as if the Apostle Paul is saying, oh, well, judging from your conduct, I would have never known you were high priest. The way you're conducting yourself surely is not in keeping with the way a high priest would comport himself. Had you conducted yourself decently, I would have known you were a high priest, but I didn't know you were a high priest. That's why I reviled you. Again, that kind of turns the whole apology and makes the apology a non-apology and further insults the high priest. And I don't think that that's what Paul's doing. Some have suggested that the Apostle Paul's eyesight was so bad he couldn't see who Ananias was and he couldn't see who the high priest was. 
And so he, he honestly is squinting intently at the crowd because he can't see what's going on because his eyes have deteriorated to the point where he's nearly blind. He couldn't drive a mule if his life depended on it. And so he has to be led around by the hand all the time. And when he says, I did not know that you were high priest, he's just acknowledging, I can't see I, who did it. I'm almost blind. Now, I'm not of the opinion that the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh was his eyes. I don't believe that it was. And I don't believe that this indicates that he had poor eyesight. There's a fourth option. It may be that the Apostle Paul really did not see who it was that gave the order. In other words, as he begins to address part of the council, over here, somebody gives the order, and slam, out of the blue, he gets hit in the mouth, and Paul just turns around and says to, basically in a very general way, you whitewash tomb, speaking to whoever it was that gave the order, you whitewash tomb, God is going to destroy you. Because you judge yourselves, you judge me according to the law. And that he honestly did not see who it was that gave the order. But then somebody says, you reviled God's high priest. And the Apostle Paul then realizes... I just said something against him, not knowing who it was that I was really talking to. I didn't see who gave the order, but then he realizes that the person he was speaking to was the high priest, and he acknowledged that as wrong. That's possible. That carries a lot more weight than the first three combined, in my opinion. But here's what I think, how I think you and I need to take it. At face value. The Apostle Paul really did not know who Ananias was. He really did not know who it was that he was standing before who was the high priest. Since Ananias had become high priest, the Apostle Paul has made only three trips to Jerusalem. One in the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. One after his second missionary journey where he briefly greeted the church and left to Antioch. And then this one as he showed up after his third missionary journey. His trips to Jerusalem have been infrequent and very short at best. Now I'm sure if you had asked the Apostle Paul, what's the name of the high priest? He would have been able to say, Ananias, son of whoever it was. He would have known who it was. But I don't think the Apostle Paul could have picked Ananias out of a lineup. If you had lined up a bunch of people up there and said, single out the high priest, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have been able to identify him. He had not trafficked in those circles. He did not know who Ananias was. He honestly means, I didn't know you were the high priest. He didn't know who he was and he couldn't have picked him out of a lineup. I think that that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. He simply didn't know who Ananias was. But he made it right. And he said, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were the high priest, brethren. The Word of God says, and I am captive. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. And the Word of God says, you shall not revile a ruler of your people. You shall not speak evil of God, nor shall you speak evil of a ruler of a people. And Paul quotes Exodus 22, verse 28, when he says that at the end of verse 5. And he makes it right. Now I want you to notice two things here in this passage. First of all, I want you to notice what God's expects his people's attitude to be toward authority. Even when the authority is wicked, and even when the authority does not function as God designed it or intended it or ordained it to function, the Apostle Paul knew this is the most wicked man, conscienceless man who's ever held a position of high priest. And yet when he realizes what he did, he immediately submits to that authority and to his rule and recognizes him for holding the position that he had. When you submit to an authority and you have that attitude of respect and obedience to authority, it doesn't mean that the authority is righteous. It doesn't mean that the authority always functions the way God intends it or that they're even recognized or are conscious of God. But what it does mean is that we acknowledge that God by His providence and His sovereignty has placed that authority in that position and given that individual His authority. And if God didn't want Him to have it, He would remove Him from that position. And so we submit to the authority, even though the authority is wicked. Now listen, the second you'll notice the second thing that the Apostle Paul did. It shows us not only his respect 
in obedience to authority, even when authority is wicked. But it shows us how it is that you and I maintain a clear conscience, doesn't it? Immediately when he recognized he was wrong, Paul submitted to the Word and said, you're right, I'm wrong. I violated the Word of God, this particular scriptural commandment. I had no authority to do that. I had no justification for doing that, and I'm wrong. Now, the Apostle Paul could have gotten into an argument with Ananias and the entire council about whose violation of the law was more flagrant. Paul's speaking evil of an individual who he didn't even recognize was in a position of authority, or Ananias, who had that position of authority and knowingly, willingly, and flagrantly violated the law by having the Apostle Paul struck. Whose violation of the law was worse? Ananias is clearly. The Apostle Paul violated the law in ignorance. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know who the high priest was. But he doesn't justify it. He doesn't rationalize it. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, here's why I did what I did. I was beaten almost to death yesterday, almost scourged yesterday. I've had a bad week. Give me a little break. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't excuse it. He doesn't rationalize it. He just says, you're right, the Word says this. And I was wrong. He takes responsibility for his wrong. And why does Luke include this? I think it is because the Luke knows that this would float around, that this had happened about the Apostle Paul. And so Luke, by putting this in writing, really sort of, sort of eliminates the fodder for people who might say he's a violator of the law. He spoke evil of the high priest. Luke includes this to show us not only Paul's respect and obedience for authority, but second, friends, how it is that you keep a clear conscience. When you do something wrong, and your conscience bears witness to that, you have that well-informed conscience that has Scripture as its rule, and you immediately submit to that, yield yourself to that, confess it, and make it right. Ananias didn't make it right, but the Apostle Paul did. And in doing so, he is making sure that as far as rests with him, he is at peace with all men. That's what he's doing. Now listen, Paul's time in front of the Sanhedrin is not over. The best is yet to come. I think one of the most humorous and most enjoyable passages in all of these later chapters of Acts is before us for next week. And we're going to see what the Apostle Paul does that ends up saving his life. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We are thankful for this, this faculty that we have called the conscience. And we're thankful that your spirit works through it and that your word informs it. And I pray, God, that you give us the grace to immediately submit to your word when we have erred to make it right, that you would be honored and glorified. And Father, that you would give us a well-informed and properly functioning conscience and that you would give us the grace to not abuse that, to sear it or to sin against it. We pray, God, for this grace because we know that everything that we have and everything that we are depends upon you and your sanctifying work in our hearts. And we yield ourselves to that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.